Devin Dixon Show, how is everybody doing? And as we told you, very special guest, been way too long from Flood Street to Fenway. The one and only Bruce Hurst joins us now here on ESPN Radio. Bruce, greetings, salutations, my friends. Great to talk to you. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's good to talk to you too, Devin. Oh, excited to talk. We got I got so much I want to get into with you here. But how's the wife? How's the kids? How's the farm? Kind of tell all the uh, St. George natives what uh, you've been doing since uh, you, you hung up the cleats in the mitt. Uh, and your MLB career came to an end. Oh, the kids are great. Old, I've got old kids. I've got five grandkids, and and that's uh, been a blast. Them, my wife's great. We're all just doing everything okay. And I, yeah, you mentioned a farm. I bought a farm about five years ago. It uh, might be the dumbest thing I've ever done, but it's the most fun I've had since I retired. So <laughs> I can't figure that out. I love it. I love it. Uh you know, let's talk about the early days. Growing up in St. George, you're, you're, you take, take, give me some Don Lay talk here, like some old stories. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know Don personally, but but I heard he was a legend, and I know you played for him. And I'm just curious, and for people maybe you're new to the area that don't know your story, t- take me through the early days as, as a baseball talent right here in St. George and, and, and kind of share some of those experiences with everybody. Okay, I'll try to make it quick. And it's been a long time ago. So I can remember Don Lay is a legend. He was a phenomenal coach. Don, um, Don had, um, an, an immense affection for winning. And he, he had this innate ability to, to maximize the best out of everybody. And, um, he was uh, clever and he was insightful and he was unique. His personality was, uh, he was a gambler. He, he, um, he, he loved to, to do the unpredictable, and um, he was a lot of fun to play for. He was he was really interesting. As a I played, you know, he coached baseball. That wasn't his first um, first love. Basketball was his first love, and I played basketball with him for, for him for three years, and um, we we had a blast. We we never won state championship. We got beat my junior year um, in the final game against uh, Cedar when that was a great big rivalry. And then, um, and then my my senior year, we got beaten triple overtime against American Fork in the state semifinals. American Fork went on to win it that year. And I've got some friends who were on that high school team, and neither one of us have um, video. Neither school has a video of that game. And it is one of probably goes down one of the best high school basketball games in the history of the state of Utah. And there's no no video of it anywhere. And um, but that's how it all ended for my high school career in basketball. You know, I want to ask you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say you bring up you played multiple sports. We're seeing kids nowadays, you know, kind of kind of narrow it down. And some are still playing two, but a lot are exclusively playing one sport right now. You are a multi-sport star. Do you still encourage that with your kids, your grandkids? I mean, is that something that you still believe in fiercely? Absolutely. I think you should. You can't, you, it, like for ba- baseball, for instance, it's a one-sided sport, right? I only develop one side of my body all the time. I'm a left-handed pitcher, and I throw, I, I do everything left-handed. I never do anything, and I run, I take a left turn around the bases all the time. Everything I do, right, is kind of one direction. And But, you know, I, I played basketball, and that, that developed other athletic skills. I had to develop some, some athletic, you know, movement, some lateral movement, and, and you know, some more flexibility, and and I had to learn to use my right hand. I had to do a lot of different things in, in basketball that, that really, I think, uh, helped me. I had to develop foot speed. 
Um, and uh, it was just things that helped me develop as an as a all-around athlete. And then as you get older, I believe that you can narrow in, in those, um, you know, what sport you're going to play. And uh, I played actually junior college basketball when I was in the minor leagues. I came and played a couple of years at Dixie and uh, for Neil Roberts and started for, with Doug Allred, but then I got hurt and couldn't, couldn't really start the season. And that ended up being his last year. Uh, but I played for Neil for two years and, and uh, played with some great guys and on some great teams. And it really helped me. I think that even, even playing then helped me in my, um, my ability to, to be a baseball player. I love the competitiveness. You have to learn. You have to compete. And, and I just remember as a kid, uh, after the summer, going in the gym. And I played all summer long. I would sneak. We'd sneak in the gym. Don Lay and Doug Allred, in a small town, I could knock on their door. Once I got to be about a sophomore in high school or ninth grade, I could knock on their door. And they would give me the keys to the gym. And when nobody was there in the summertime, now everybody would be thrown in jail and it would be, uh, you know, <laughs> hung in effigy in town but you know we could go in the gym and we could play and we'd play for hours and hours and hours and um so you know even the summertime when it was baseball season i was still playing but i remember for the summer walking in to the gym to play get ready for the high school season and man it was magical but that same feeling of when i walked out of the gym after the basketball season and got to go outside in the sunlight and smell the cut grass and you know, hear the glove pop and the crack of the bat. That was magical too. And they were mentally um, both really healthy for me. It helped me be better in both sports. So I'm a big advocate of playing multiple sports. Well, you were a, a lot of levels. You were a standout basketball player, and I can tell just by hearing you talk, you loved basketball. How hard was it to choose baseball? And what was it like in St. George in the '70s getting recruited? What was that process like coming out of a small town? It was interesting. So, yes, I did love basketball. I was known as a basketball player and surprised people when baseball started to show up. So um, in, when I was a kid, uh, baseball, after Little League, there was no other league um, when I was 12, 12 years old. We got out of Little League, and uh, there was nothing else for us to play. And we had a couple guys move to town back then, a guy named Kent Garrett, uh, Dennis Wood, um, uh, Ken Harper, and Rick Mahato. I still remember their names. Kent is still a, um, one of my best friends, a dear friend. I owe a lot to him. And they started a 13, 14, 15-year-old league, and we had enough for two teams. We didn't have uniforms. We played in blue jeans and whatever, whatever spikes we could find. And then one team had blue sleeved Henleys, and the other team had red sleeved Henleys. And we'd practice two or three times a week at 6 in the morning because it was so hot, and we'd play on a Saturday. And we'd play, I don't know, maybe 10 games during the year. Uh, but that was, that was my baseball season until I was 15. And Kent, um, Kent saw something in me. We had no videotape. And so we would go to uh, his – he had a clothing store. And we would go to, the, to Dixie Drug and we'd get the, uh, all these sports um, magazines. We'd get the baseball magazines. They had a bunch of them then. And we'd cut out the pictures – and we put together a book on hitting and a book on pitching. And we would mimic and see the positions that all the, these, these players would be in. And then he had a three-way mirror, and I would stand in front of the mirror, and we would try to see if I could get into certain positions, how to lift my leg and rock back and put the ball in my glove, and just the subtle things of learning how to deliver a baseball. And so that's how it kind of all began for me. And then as a senior, when I got to be a sophomore in high school, we had a high school team. 
And so I played my sophomore year. We won a state championship. We had a pitcher, a guy named Mark Jameson, that uh, went on to play at UNLV. I thought I had a chance to be drafted. Big, strong-bodied, right-handed guy. And we had some great athletes, and we won a state championship. And after my junior year, um, Kent started American Legion program. We had to play 13 games in order to qualify for the state tournament in Salt Lake. And nobody wanted to come to St. George in the wintertime, I mean the summertime. So we had to go all over. Went to, to Price, went to Provo a couple of times, went to Salt Lake. Anywhere we could find a game, we played double headers. And I think the week before the tournament, we played, um, we played our 12th or 13th game, whatever it was we had to qualify for. And so we were the, the last seed against, um, against the number one seed. And I pitched, and I remember I struck out like 14 or 15 in seven inning game. And I slipped on a bunder. We would have beat the number one seed. And that was the first time that I was uh, ever seen by scouts. And uh, at Ken Price, old Ken Price Park up in, I don't know, it was a Dirks Field. It was an old Dirks Field in, in Salt Lake. And that's where uh, I was first seen. And then I started getting letters, and there was all kinds of things. And my senior year in high school, they would come and watch me play basketball to see what kind of an athlete I was. And then they were all my games. And I was drafted that June, June of 76. So my kind of introduction to, to baseball was really my, my junior year in high school. After my junior year, through American Legion, and then my senior year in high school. And um, next thing I know, I'm in Elmira, New York. <laughs> Start my career, so it was different. It wasn't. It wasn't like it is today. Yeah, letters didn't make it. When you said you received letters, now people get tweets and uh, you know yeah. DMs and stuff in the recruiting process. You got the old-fashioned no, letters back then. The yeah, old-fashioned letter. <clears throat> I, uh, I. It was just. It was a really interesting, interesting time. It was a. Uh, um, it was all new. Everything was was the first time. You didn't go so, right to the minors, though. You you didn't sign right out when you were drafted, did you? You're a first round draft pick, but you you decided to go to college, correct? No, I signed. I signed and left. I signed in June. I went to Elmira, New York, and um, started my career. So I, I graduated in May of 1976 from high school. Drafted in June. Signed in June. Our team, we had Wade Boggs was on that team. A guy named Glenn Hoffman was on that team. Reed Nichols, who played uh, about eight, ten years in the big leagues. Um, we, had a, we had a bunch of guys that ended up playing the big leagues. We won the championship that year. We won the New York Penn League championship. And uh, a guy named Chico Walker was on that team. He played about 15 years in the big leagues. And so uh, we had a really good young draft, good, a good draft. And um, it was it was um, it was a lot of fun, and so I came back and wasn't gonna you know playing basketball anymore. But I played for a couple of years, and I didn't start out very well in the minor leagues. Um, I I kept getting hurt, and um, so I said I wanted to play basketball, and that's when I went back and played at, at Dixie. Got a couple of years in gotcha. before I went to finally made it to the big leagues. There you go. There you go. Uh, once that's you long, that's long winded, Devin. I apologize. No, I love it. Hey, I wanted to ask before we jump into the, the the major leagues and the Red Sox about the longest game ever played in the minor leagues uh, and pitching in like a thirty two inning game or something like that, Bruce. Yes, we played uh, in in, in nineteen eighty one. Um, we we start we played it was uh, the day before Easter Saturday before Easter Sunday, and uh, we started to play. We we're going to play the Rochester Red Wings. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. was on that team. And um, we had a pitcher on our team. His name is Danny Parks. He was going to start. 
And the game was supposed to start at 7, and somebody, a car, had had an accident, hit a power pole down the street and turned the lights out at the ballpark. So we had to wait about a half an hour before we could start the game. And uh, so we started the game, and it was a cold night in New England, and we played to a tie, a 2-2 tie, for 32 innings. And the reason (laughs) we ended up 44 o'clock in the morning, the reason why is for whatever reason, the umpires had the, the rule book, the league rule book. And for whatever reason, in their specific book, the paragraph was missing, was missing that said no new inning should start after 1 o'clock in the morning. And so we kept calling the league office to try to say, can you, can you solve this for us? Because they would just not budge because it wasn't in the rule book. And we couldn't reach the league, the league president. So we finally got him at 4 o'clock in the morning. It was the coldest I've ever been in a uniform. <laughs> we were taking all the broken bats and putting them in those metal 40, uh, 55-gallon drums lighting a fire because there was no heaters. We didn't have any of the luxuries of today. And, um, and I, was, I had already thrown my bullpen. I was in between starts. And so it got to the point where we needed pitching. So they loosened me up, and I pitched from 2.30 till 4 in the morning. Pitched the 28th to the 22nd inning. <laughs> and um, they threw a guy out the plate to end one of the innings, I think, and uh, that pro- prolonged the game. And so it was in the in 1981 was when they had the long baseball strike. And so we didn't finish the game that the next day. The next day was a Sunday and it was a getaway day for the for the uh, the Rochester team. And so we didn't play the game. We were going to finish it the next time the team came to town. And so when that happened, the next time they came to town was during the strike. And so TBS came in and they broadcast the game and we played one inning and we won three to two. Marty Barrett knocked in a guy named, um, I mean, Dave Coza knocked in a guy named, not knocked, knocked in Marty Barrett, a teammate of mine and played with the Red Sox for a long time. Amazing. So, yeah, so that's a record that won't be broken with the rules today where they start with a runner on second base and right. all that stuff. So that's, that's one I think will, will last for a long time. The longest professional baseball game, 32 innings. It took mm-hmm. two days two days to finish. Bruce Hurst <laughs> two days to finish. hanging out with us here on ESPN Radio. Um, what was your – in the minors, what, what, what was your – the same pitches you had as a youngster um, – and then what changed when you got up to the big leagues? Did you just get better command, better movement? What? Uh, I, I, because obviously your postseason numbers are incredible once you finally got up with the Red Sox in the majors. So baseball is, a, is an interesting game. So we play, um, you know, I played to the minor leagues, and um, I got better. When I was healthy, I got better each year. Each level, uh, you play against more experienced players. The talent gets uh, a little more... Um, refined and uh, it's the best players keep rising to the top. That makes sense. And you get to triple a and you play against a lot of great players. A lot of guys that are, had got big league time came back down. Some guys were rehabbing. Uh, it was a, you know, it was an interesting time. Nothing I did in the minor leagues prepared me for life in the big leagues, especially as life as a left-handed pitcher in Fenway park for the Boston Red Sox. Um, they hadn't had a left-handed pitcher since Bill Lee in the, in the early 70s, in mid-70s, and um, they were chomping the bit for one. And it was a dog-eat-dog town. It was a team filled with Hall of Famers. Carl Yastrzemski, um, 
Carlton Fisk, Fred Lynn, Jim Rice, Dwight Evans, Amazing. Rick Burleson, uh, Dennis Eckersley. He was a pitcher. I mean, it was just just uh, Tony Perez. They just had all these guys were just, I mean, megastars, veteran players, and they had no patience for a young, inexperienced kid like me. And so when you say, was it the same stuff? Yes. But I learned, I had to learn how to compete at a level I'd never competed against before. And I had to learn to overcome adversity and, and, and think on my feet like I'd never had to do before. And I had just had to get more refined. I had to get better. I had to have a command, a home plate that could get big league hitters out. And um, it was, it was a learning, learning curve once I got there and I, and I had to learn on the job. So it was a, it was a interesting time. It was a blast. I'm not going to lie, but it was, it was challenging. It was, it was hard. <laughs> what was the, in, in those, you know, five, six years, uh, you know, leading up to the world series appearance in 86, where you uh, pitched amazingly. Um, what was the, uh, the rivalry with the Yankees like in, in those years, Bruce? Well, they used to say that you'd go to the fights and a baseball game broke out when you go to the baseball, when you go to Fenway or Yankee stadium. It was intense. It was, uh, you know, it was a few years after the, the, the eight, uh, 78 when the Red Sox lost a big lead and the Yankees won in a playoff game. Um, the Yankees had won all these games. The Red Sox, we hadn't won anything since 1918. And uh, the, the two teams and had a, a history, generational history. And um, it was just, it was a, just an intense environment. Um, but it was, it, was, um, it was great. And, and you had to bring your A game. Both teams were loaded with talent, and um, you, and the fans were, you know, involved. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and um, it was uh, it was it was just an amazing experience. There's nothing like it. Nothing like the Yankee Red Sox uh, rivalry. And um, it's it's. Um, I mean, you walk into ball, you walk into clubhouse. You know, I I, I met Joe DiMaggio there, right? Ted yeah. comes at the ballpark. He comes like I mean. These these are these are not just baseball legends. They're they're you know national legends. Uh, songs are written about them, and um, it's just it was just really cool to be in an environment like that. It was just the best. And the media um, they didn't you know there's a competition between the New York media and the Boston media too. And um, there was no you couldn't come in there half stepping. You had to it to be in full stride. Bruce Hurst, our guest here on ESPN Radio. I saw somewhere along the lines when I was, you know, looking at some old headlines that you used to go shoot hoops in the garden with Danny Ainge. Is that true, Bruce? So, so not in the garden, yeah. So Danny and I, I played against Danny in the minor leagues um, in the early 80s when he was at BYU and just starting his career in baseball. And um, he, was, he went right to AAA. And because of our Utah ties and obviously the youngest church ties, we – we kind of developed a friendship. And so um, then he, you know, went on to play basketball and I finally made it to the big leagues. I was the last guy. My, we were the last people to make the team in 1982. Um, we got, we got told we made the team like the last day of spring training. Cause I didn't know if I was going to be in Boston or back in Pawtucket. And I had no place to play. And the, the, you just have to understand the world was different than you know, than it is today. So my wife had to drive our car up, no GPS, no idea where she was. And um, she had to drive up from Florida to Boston uh, by herself. Um, I think she followed some of the minor league trainers actually 
And then I took off, <laughs> and we, we started on the road. And uh, I had nowhere to stay. So I got Danny's number, and I called him on the phone, and I said, is there any way that my wife and I could stay there for a few days while we locate a place to stay? And he said, no problem, that's fine, which was really generous of him. And uh, we ended up being there like two months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was able to stay. It was my first full season in the big leagues, and we just developed this uh, very good friendship. And he's still a, one of my best friends today. And so he's playing with the Celtics, and I'm playing with the Red Sox. And, um, and you know, when, when the uh, preseason would be around, right before uh, training camp for the Celtics, they, they practiced at this little Greek, or, Greek Orthodox college called Hellenic College in Boston. And that's where they'd have their practice. And so when I could, when we had a, an off day in September or we played a day game and there was a night game, I'd go over and uh, I'd watch them work out. And then I got to shoot around a little bit. And, um, yeah, no, it's magical. I got to shoot around with Bird, with Danny, with Mikhail, with Chief, with DJ. Um, and it was just a, a terrific experience for us. And, um, I mean, and we just developed this relationship and this friendship that, that happened. So he would, come to, he would come to the Red Sox games, and he would come early sometimes. He'd take his boys and go watch Clemens throw a bullpen and, and you know, he'd hang around the cage, and uh, he was friends with, with all the guys, and, and I got to know a lot of the Celtic players. But it was a magical, magical time for a kid out of St. George, Utah, who was a huge basketball fan, to be able to go and shoot around with the Boston Celtics while playing for the Red Sox. That's just that's stupid fun. Uh, I wanted to just touch briefly on the, the World Series, Bruce. I know you, you never get asked, asked these questions about that. a billion times. <laughs> But uh, you, you were obviously awesome in that series, and I just wanted to give you a second to just talk about uh, memories from, you know, that uh, that series. So the World Series was um, was unbelievable. Uh, the journey to get there was, was remarkable. Uh, we started the year, we made a trade in spring training. We traded Mike Eastler to New York, and we got Don Baylor in, in return. And um, it was, um, he was amazing. And Clemens was just stupid good. And he made all of us pitchers better. We got on his coattails and we rode like crazy. And it elevated all of our games and the pitchers. I know for me personally, because I didn't want to be the guy that lost after Clemens, right? <laughs> and we, they, they were really good for this guy, Hurst, who kept losing after Clemens. So I had to pitch, pick up my game, and um, we ended up having a blast. And we had some great monster years. Box was, you know, second to none, swinging the bat. Rice was in his prime. Evans was, was in his prime. Richie Gedman had developed into being a really nice young catcher. Marty Barrett was a good, solid pro. Billy Buckner we had traded for the year before. And um, you know, Buck was huge. He knocked in over 100 runs at close to 300 for us and played every day on – two of the worst angles I've ever seen. David Henderson, we traded for uh, him and Spike Owen came mid season, tremendous athlete, great guys, great teammates, great in the clubhouse. And uh, we just developed this team and this ability. And we won games all year long in just some of the craziest ways. And then, you know, we're, we're down to one strike in, in California and um, Donnie Baylor hits a home run and we win 
uh, game five in just unbelievable faction, fashion in Anaheim. And we go back to Boston and we, we just, we just run rough shot over them for two games to go to the world series. And that, that going to New York, the New York Boston uh, environment has, like I said, with the Yankees was intense, but the microscope for the world series was like I, nothing I'd ever experienced before. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like that series developed just to a crescendo in game seven. That was uh, just unbelievable. And that whole experience to be so close you know, and still lose was it's it's still heartbreaking, and um, we lost. Huh. Yeah, but you pitched unbelievable. I mean, you won. I did okay. I, I did all right. So we lost Donnie Baylor. I mean, uh, we lost Donnie Baylor, but we lost Bill Buckner also a couple of years ago. Yeah, and uh, he passed away, and and Buck fell on the sword for that team. Yeah. And um, he's a good man, and he was a great player. You can make a case for him being a Hall of Fame. I did all right. I won, a, I won a close game in game one. I won a big game in game five. We won two in New York, and we lost two in, in Boston. And, and so game, game five in New York was critical, and, and, and I was able to win in a complete game. And um, so we go to New York having to, win, having to win one game. And that's when game six happened, and the ball went through the legs, and you know, they came back and won. We were one strike away, just like the Angels were against us. Um, but it was it was just an amazing experience. It forever changed my view of of baseball and, and what what the real essence of the game is. And um, it was beautiful. It was just a blast. Now, what, didn't you start Game Seven too, and, and pitched well, and then they turned it over the bullpen? Is that right? Do I remember that correctly, Bruce? Yeah, so I started game seven. So I pitched game five, and then it was like uh, two days later. Then, uh, you know, we, we, we lose game six, and then we were going to play on, a, on a, I think, a Monday or a Sunday, and it got rained out. So we, we, got, we got rained out for game seven, and uh, Oil Can was supposed to pitch. And then with the extra day's rest, McNamara called me and said, you know, we're going to give you the ball for game seven. So I was on like two days rest and said, okay and and off we go and i had him shut out for five and two thirds and um i gave up a double with um with two outs two guys on uh, or three guys on i think two guys on one had already scored on a, on an out and uh two runs scored on the double and and uh, i left tied after six innings i left uh tied three to three and then the, turned it over the bullpen and, and they they won kind of going away yeah yeah, what a magical series! A heartbreak, obviously, uh, on, on the side of the Red Sox. Was the curse talked about? In the, oh. you, I mean, it had to be in your eyeballs everywhere you went. I mean, you couldn't avoid the curse of the Bambino, could you? No, it was everywhere we went, and I mean, it was nauseating. Dan Shaughnessy, a great writer for the Boston Globe for years, still writing there. Uh, he wrote a book. I can't remember what it's called. Um, I, I should remember. You'll have to. Look, but he he wrote in the book. He took the letters of my name, and and they spelled out B Ruth Curse, and so <laughs> that was a lot of fun to have that. But uh, I'll be honest with you: when they won in 2004, I was jumping up and down. <laughs> yeah, I was thrilled for that because we got rid of that stupid curse. But there were still a lot of guys, old old guys, Johnny Pesky and and um, Eddie Popowski, a lot of time Red Sox coaches. And, and that had been around that they got a 
chance to, to win. And I was thrilled for them and the whole, the, all the fans in, in, in new England that, you know, had a chance to really savor a world championship. I mean, that was, I mean, I was, I cherished that. That was the best. I know uh, how close you were with Roger Clemens and, some people say that you gave him his nickname, the Rocket. I wanted to confirm if that's true. And how weird was it when he eventually left and uh, suited up for the Yankees several several years later? So yes, I did. I called him Rocket. But he, and he, you just had to see him throwing a bullpen as a young kid to just feel like you're at you know at the Cape Canaveral. So just ball exploded <laughs> out of his hands, and um, he was the, the greatest teammate I ever had. Um, so I was gone before he left. So I left after the 88 season and went to San Diego as a free agent. He stayed. And then a few years later, we got traded to, to Toronto mm-hmm. and then went to New York. So um, just the, all that time where all that happened, the volatility between, um, you know, baseball players and, and the union, the union baseball players and, and then the league was at a fever pitch. And so there was just a lot of other things going on behind, um, behind the scenes that, you know, wasn't necessarily in the media. Not a lot of people knew about, and it was just a a really crazy time. So there was a lot of, um, a lot of things happening. And and so when he went to New York, it didn't surprise me. Um, And I, I was, and after, especially after what he did in Toronto, he was, I mean, I think he won the Triple Crown wins, ERA, and strikeouts, you know, all three years. I'm not sure, but I think he – I know mm-hmm. he did at least two of those years where he, was, he just dominated the league. And um, and so going to New York, and I was glad that he won a world championship, you know, there. I was, I was happy for him. And, um, you know, he's just – he's had a phenomenal career. The legendary Bruce Hurst hanging out with us here on ESPN Radio. Bruce, fun to go back and take a trip down – uh, memory Road, great career. I mean, 145 wins, sub four ERA in your career, and just to hear you talk about former teammates and the guys that you, you know, played against and played with is fascinating for me and Andy. Um, cur- curious uh, as a former alumni and athlete, bring it back to St. George for just a second. This whole name change going on right now, as a former athlete that went to Dixie Junior College, that was a rebel when you were here. In fact, when I was here in 98, 99 as a student, I, I was a rebel. What, 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 I know you've been a little bit involved in this, but I wanted to get your angle as far as a former athlete on your take of Utah Tech, Trailblazers, the future, the whack, and your thoughts on that process. Well, it's been an amazing process. I have been involved in it. I'm, I'm for the change. I, I, I was ready to, to move on from Dixie. I think it's got um, a lot of issues with that name nationally. I think this university is poised to be um, anything it really wants to be, both academically and athletically. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled for, for the possibilities of this school. Um, as, an, as an alumni, I look at it from a coach. That's kind of the way I, I look at this. And when, uh, you know, as a coach walking into a home and you're going you're gonna to recruit a, a young man or a young woman to come there, you, you, you're really recruiting the mom, more than likely. You've got to make sure mom feels good about where they're going in the opportunity. One of the things I've learned through this process is the academic mission of the school I really like, and I think it's going to provide an opportunity, an open enrollment, polytechnic education, STEM-centered, that's got a broad uh, humanities um, 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 program and, and, and school and university, I mean, school within the university. 
that there's a lot of opportunity for kids and students to come and young young athletes to come and get on, uh, you know, get on with their careers in, in sports, but also gain a, a really first-class education and be exposed to a lot of opportunity. I like that a lot. I think that if I would tell a, a young player coming here that they're going to play in front of, you know, they're going to play in some really great first-class facilities, and, you know, the WAC is a strong conference, there could be some good competition, and you're going to play in front of a wonderful fan base that are going to support them and support the school. And um, I think that's really important. And so I think it's got a bright, bright future. And I think on the national stage, Utah Tech, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a name with Virginia Tech and, and, Virginia, and Georgia Tech and Texas Tech. And, and uh, there's a Tennessee Tech and, and you know, a, a strong, you know, strong athletic program, strong academic programs. And I think that's it's somewhat aspirational now. But I have confidence in the administration. I have confidence in the athletic department that, um, and, and, and the faculty that um, they'll be able to, to make it more than aspirational. They'll, they'll be able to achieve what they want to achieve. It's not going to be overnight. There's going to be a learning curve. But I think it's going to be wonderful to watch. So I'm excited about the future and the possibility of what this university can be. Well put. Well put. Bruce, I, before we let you go, I, w- I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask you as a former Major League pitcher about all this. The big storyline this year is the uh, sticky stuff on the hands. A lot of pitchers are rolling their eyes at it and saying this has been happening since Cy Young was pitching. What What's your take on uh, Manfred kind of cracking down on pitchers and searching them before the games and stuff like that? <laughs> and it, it, It's kind of crazy, right? It's a little crazy. It's a lot crazy. And yes. Guys have been trying to find an advantage a long time. That's part of it, right? Um, this this super sticky stuff is new to me. Mm-hmm. So I used, uh, I, I you know I experimented with with pine tar, putting that on. You know it helps you give it keep a little you know spin the ball a little tighter. I never liked the feeling, so I never used any of that stuff for me. I used I had I had rosin, mm-hmm. and I developed the way it kind of worked for me. I developed a good little system to get a lot of rosin on my on my glove side wrist and um, I, with the sweat that I would have, it developed, I developed a nice little tacky feeling for the baseball. And it gave me, it gave me feel and enough tackiness that I could spin it. Major league baseballs. It's a, it's an, it's a weird thing. They don't have great seams on them. It's not, it's not a college baseball. There's no high seam. Mm. And so you have to, you have to find a way. Uh, and if they're not rubbed up well, because they come out of the box really slick, and they put that Delaware River mud on. They're supposed to take the shine off a little, and and um, take some of the and uh, take the, the slickness off of it. Um, not all baseballs are rubbed up equal, and so there's always an issue with that. And there's always an issue between hitters and pitchers on how dark the baseballs are. And so um, you know there, there's a fine line that the umpires have to walk that way. Um, but this other stuff, I find it interesting for me, though, as I watch some of these guys who cannot pitch now are really struggling without the, the super tacky stuff. And I just wonder, because they've made pitching to be not an art anymore. They've tried to make it a science to where it's all spin rate, velocity, mm-hmm. and, and you know all of this stuff, along with hitting being exit speed and launch angles, which to me is nauseating, to be right honest with you. It's hard <laughs> for me to watch what, what pitching's become, but this inability to spin the ball without that kind of tackiness, I think that there's something these guys will develop and get better at, but I, 
I really have a struggle with that. They need to have a better feel for what the baseball is like in their hand, and they need to be able to make this adjustment a lot quicker than they're making it. That's my two cents worth on it. I love it. Bruce Hurst, Dixie State Hall of Fame, Athletics Hall of Fame, part of the Red Sox Hall of Fame, an all-around good guy sharing some stories, hanging out with us here on ESPN Radio. Bruce, it was a pleasure, man. Do you do you still get do you still watch a lot? Do you watch the the new age pitchers, the Jacob DeGroms and and the uh, Shihei Otani's? I mean, do, do you find yourself fascinated by some of the young talent coming into the league? Do you still get time to take in some games from time to time? I don't actually, and I wish I did. I, the, the game got to the point where it was a three outcome game for me. It was a walk, a strikeout, or a homer. And um, I, I just I, I wanted to see guys hit away from the from the shifts. I wanted to see a hit and run. I wanted to see, uh, you know, some bunts. I wanted to see some guys like drag bunt and do some things, you know, that, that have some imagination and creativity on how to play the game. I wanted to see guys pitch away from, you know, from the, be able to have some command around the strike zone instead of just velocity and spin rates in the middle of the strike zone. But I need to get back to where I'm watching it again. I know there's some special talent um, there that that, um, that I, I need to appreciate. I love it, Bruce. Uh, when are you going to move back the family back to St. George, man? How come, you, how come you went to Arizona? Why didn't you move back to St. George? We miss you here. That's uh, a long story, but we're we've been here. I've been, we've lived here longer than we've lived anywhere. I've lived in Arizona longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. So it's um, our kids are kind of settled here and. So we'll see. We're getting old, though. It's time for trying to figure out what's next. <laughs> Man, it was a pleasure. We'll have you on again, my friend. Thank you so Thanks, much Bruce. for the time. Thank you, Devin. Be yeah. safe. Be well. And we'll talk again soon. The legendary Bruce Hurst hanging out with us here on ESPN Radio. We got to take a break. We'll be right back.